0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of AWM Insights. It's your power three, two CPWAs and a CFA. We are Eric, Brandon, and Justin. And at AWM, we are a community of athletes, founders, and investors on a journey to be the best at what we do. And we believe you deserve the same when it comes to your wealth. So each week, we cut through the noise of what Wall Street is selling you to bring you the knowledge, skills, and access to invest like a pro. And so today we're gonna tackle the topic of resisting chasing past performance. But before we do that, as we do every week, let's jump into a few of the big news stories around the markets. And so uh, first from the sports world, Endeavor goes public. And for our audience that is not familiar with Endeavor, they are one of the largest talent agencies in the world. They own properties like the UFC. And it's an interesting story because two years ago, they attempted an IPO that completely failed. Um, And now uh, they obviously have gone public and really talking about the headwinds of all of... uh, the importance of sports going forward in that they believe so much of sports through the pandemic showed that it really is uh, Teflon when it comes to tough uh, headwinds. And so very interesting story out of Endeavor uh, on the gross domestic product front. We actually have seen 6.4% in the quarter ending March. We now only sit 1% below pre pandemic levels After adjusting for inflation. So just wild once again to see how far we've come uh, in a quick year post uh, pandemic. And then crazy to think President Joe Biden has reached 100 days in the office. It felt like the election was just uh, a few weeks ago, but here we are 100 days into his presidency. Uh, And then in addition, uh, the Fed met last week. They left the monetary policy completely unchanged. Uh, That was the first of eight scheduled meetings for the year. And something we're going to do a little different on this show is before we get into this topic, Justin's going to bring us up to speed. What exactly has been going on in the markets from a return standpoint year to date?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'll talk a couple, a little bit about a couple different indices here or indexes, um, and and you guys will commonly hear some of these. I'll try and put a little bit of color around what what is what 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 the actual index is trying to measure. Um, and let's start with uh, potentially the the question, the rhetorical question that you know, I what what do we think is outperforming the most year to date? And I'm guessing a lot of people think tech. Uh, Well, guess what? Tech has not performed. um, It's performed well, but it has not been the top performer year to date. And I'm I'm looking at tech as measured by the Nasdaq. That is a that's a broad based index. It's primarily weighted towards tech companies. It's not inclusive all inclusive of tech companies. Something to keep in mind. That is up just about eight percent year to date um, as we're recording as of when we're recording this, but. The S&P 500, which is a much broader base, S&P 500, 500, and that being the 500 largest companies in the market, is up almost 12% year to date. Then just just underperforming that is a Dow Jones industrial average. So this is one of those indexes that you hear and see everywhere, but it only represents Thirty companies, and they're kind of these old-school industrial companies, as it, as it's implied in the name. That is, um, that's returned about ten and a half percent year to date. So, um, not bad, really, so far uh, across the board. But uh, if we drill in even a little bit further, the best-performing sub-asset class, if you want to call it, or sub-part of the market, are small companies. So Russell Two Thousand is the index to to look at for those type of companies. That index specifically is returned about 15.5%. Looking a little bit outside of the US borders, emerging markets is, is showing up around 5%, just under 5%, again, as of when we're recording this. And then developed non-US companies. So think about that, like Europe, uh, Japan, countries that are that are outside the US borders, not emerging markets, that those economies, those markets have returned about seven and a quarter percent year to date. So overall, on the equity side, pretty good single digit to double digit returns thus far. Uh, What does that mean going forward? I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, And then I just want to highlight on the fixed income side, because that is an important component of our all portfolio construction and and your financial structure, right? That's the the ballast, the safety net, the uh, the, the dry powder, however you want to think about it, that because of where interest rates have gone around the world, that part of, of the market has returned a slightly negative amount, just under uh, a negative 1% rate of return. So, um, but you know, expanding that beyond longer periods of time, you're still earning a, a decent return, and that fixed income component is providing. Um, uh, some utility or some benefit to the portfolio, which you know I know we've talked about uh, through financial financial structure and portfolio construction in the past.
0: Justin, that that's super helpful to know, and and it's interesting, right? Oh, I know a lot of our listeners, and and very candidly myself. When we think outside of traditional markets, those returns sound bleak compared to what you see going on the craze of the alternative space, right? In in the crypto world, or even what it seems to be some of the returns that are being generated in the real estate markets, in the private markets, or or venture or private equity, and these type of things. Um, and so, as an investor. I know I can find myself or or those listening can, can try to look in the future and go, okay, I know I can't predict the future, but can't I at least look at what has done well recently and base my investment decisions off of that, right? That isn't it as simple as looking, what's the top performing country? What's the top performing asset class? What's the top performing specific company? And then shouldn't I just make most of my decisions off of that? And But there's this really interesting disclosure in the financial or in the investment world that is plastered everywhere. There's a conversation and actually required when you're giving investment advice. It says, past performance does not guarantee future results. And so I'd love to hear your responses as I'm an investor who's thinking, Shouldn't I base my past performance or my future investment decisions off this past performance? Why is this disclosure exist and how should I think about it as an investor?
1: Yeah, it's great. Great question. Well, the short answer is it's there for a reason, right? Uh, there, the regulators have essentially seen how the market participants, investors, have reacted and been burned. And so they now therefore require that disclosure on there. And then, you know, also how brokers, the the, the average Joe uh, brokers, if you will, um, try and sell advice, quote unquote advice, they, they will generally use performance because they know it's an easy thing to sell and it it's way more complicated to drill into something in a, in a much more granular and accurate or appropriate way of thinking about how you're investing going forward. So and, and that that's how we should think about it, right? What what's happened in the past is I don't want to say irrelevant, it's almost completely irrelevant, right? It, it, you can you can extract information from prices and and what's happened in the past, but if you are making an investment, you should be making that investment looking forward. The mar the market itself is generally forward looking, and so you, we I think we've talked about this on p- past podcasts. You need to bring in some amount of of research, of uh, analysis, fundamental, statistical, economic, whatever however you want to call it, and apply that to the investment you're making. Make that investment based on what those assumptions are and do that looking forward right looking back in the rear view mirror is is rife with with uh, minds right or, 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 or traps if you will if you're if you're looking at it in this really uh, myopic sense of just looking at performance you're you're almost you're almost bound to have a bad Investment experience, and and I and I speak about that um, firsthand. I mean, when I was young, getting into this industry, right? It's it is it's almost the easiest variable to look at, or it is the easiest variable to look at. I mean, there's you know, a million websites that have performance. You can look up every ETF, every stock. You can see it. You can see what it's done. You can see its volume, and and it's very easy to to just latch onto that information to make a decision on. And and it, in general, it 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 hasn't worked. It hasn't worked for myself personally. Um, and it's not to it's not to say there's something around. Winners will keep on winning, or losers will keep on losing. That's actually a, a well understood uh, phenomenon called momentum. Um, but it, it's not guaranteed to carry into the long term. Momentum is something that actually happens over very short periods of time. It's hard to to measure it accurately, so on and so forth. And I'm going down a little rabbit hole there, which I'll stop. Uh, but but the short of it is it, it, the disclosure is there for a reason. The Our human mind wants to uh, go after that easy, low-hanging fruit data point to make a decision. And we think we're doing a, an in-depth analysis by doing so. And you could a- almost argue, and, and there are a lot of uh, longstanding market uh, participants and investors who who will argue you should actually potentially do the opposite, right because uh there's something called mean reversion where if an asset's going too high for too long, it's probably going to come back to some some sort of fundamental value and same thing for assets that have underperformed for for too long as well,
0: yeah, you just mentioned there's there's an entire camp right that at times they'll throw around the names like Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett in this contrarian viewpoint that says, whatever the herd's doing, you should do the opposite. And, and it's not that simple, but what is built into that assumption is saying the the reason the herd is moving is, is not because there's a lot of intelligence behind it or a lot of due diligence. It's People jumping on the bullet train that at some point right might be heading to a cliff and so you actually want to look at the contrary and the undervalued companies to try and take advantage of it when it's out of favor the the comment you made that I thought was so interesting is talking about the disclosure right is that's actually put there to protect the consumer the investor from Uh, poor practices or sales tactics from Wall Street. And there's something embedded there. If you actually stop and go, they literally are doing this to protect us, which means this is is not good for us. The other thing that came to the revelation of, uh, and we've talked about this so much in other podcasts, is it goes back to the return conversation that if you are looking at, I want to get the highest returns, this is the wrong measure. And that's where the beginning of the train wreck begins because as you had mentioned earlier, fixed income, right? Like right now we've heard this question, why would I ever put money in fixed income? Well, if your measure of success of winning the game is return, well, you shouldn't put money in fixed income today. However, if we actually have a long-term view and our definition of success is achieving our priorities, What is going to give us the best pathway to give us the best consistent return to achieve the priorities that are important to us? You want a well-constructed total return portfolio, given the level of risk to meet those priorities over a given time span, right? And so, so much of the return conversation is so short-term. It's today, this week, this month, this year. Yet the way you should be investing as an investor is how do I achieve my priorities at different time periods in the future? And so therefore, you know, your target is not returns. It's a portfolio that's going to help me meet my priorities. And I just think that that is so, so, so important. One of the questions I do have though, Justin is, I hear you say markets are forward looking. Um, so you shouldn't make it off of recent price performance. How is that really different than per se tilting portfolios to small cap to, you know, to value companies versus growth with an overlay of profitability? I mean, isn't that really just using past performance? What's the difference between those two?
1: Yeah, I think it's the level of uh, rigor, I guess, if you will. You're you're not just... looking you're you're really not looking at uh, a single variable performance we're not we're not going hey small companies have outperformed recently so they should continue to outperform going forward what we do when we're when when we're conducting that analysis and why we what eric's alluding to and we've mentioned before why we generally favor smaller companies or what are called value companies those are the, that are trading at a, a lower valuation uh, multiple or metric um, is when because you, if you look over very long periods of time, those parts of the market will outperform the broader market as a whole. So think about going back to the the indes- indexes I quoted earlier, the S and P five hundred or the Russell three thousand, which is the top three thousand publicly traded stocks as well, and so. The analysis that that and the data that points to f- the benefit of favoring small companies and value companies is over a very long period of time there's some behavioral components to it as well as financial um, valuation components to it And what I mean by that is take take value companies as an example by systematically buying, Value companies, or what you're doing is you're, you're systematically buying cheaper companies in the market. You're getting a an ownership interest in companies in publicly traded companies for a cheaper amount than you are for growth companies. So that I mean that's kind of the fundamental valuation principle you need to think about. If you're investing in a growth company, you're buying that company. For a higher price, a, a higher dollar amount for every earning, every every dollar of revenue that they bring in, um, you're paying more for that than you are for a value company. And so you're you're kind of you're stacking the odds against you if you're if you're just paying more for something, right? Just think about that logically. You're paying more for an ownership interest regardless of what the underlying company is in this in this example you're paying more for something and so you, kind of logically you would think well if i'm paying more for something i i am better off if i try and go pay less i will have a higher expected return going forward similar thing i'll, I'll touch on small caps real quick is small companies are just inherently a little bit more risky they're smaller their ability to access cash in times of stress or debt markets in times of stress is a little bit more difficult. Um, you know, they can be swallowed up by larger companies. There, there's just more variables that that make them a riskier company. Again, on balance, we're talking in aggregate here, not talking about any specific company um, uh, within that smaller smaller realm or smaller arena. And so, risk and return are related, right? If you're going to go back a small company like think about think about the the venture capital space or tech space when those when venture capital investors and we participate in that market when you're going to invest in a in a small company that has a great idea but has an unproven business model you as an investor are going to require a higher potential rate of return for that. The same logic can then be translated into small the small part of the public markets as well. So again, the, it's way more than just looking at, hey, the Russell 2000, like I mentioned, that's been the best performing part of the market so far this year. We don't take that and say, okay, that's going to continue to be the best performing part of the market. We We look back way longer. We... Slice and dice the market up into various categories: small, large, value, growth, etc. And you look at how those perform over very long periods of time. Try and have a a, a a framework, a fundamental framework of why that would actually exist, and then we make sure that that ha- happens over time and throughout markets as well. If there's a there's a there's just far more rigor in, in involved in in making that decision that. That we make to say, okay, let's small, let's um, favor small companies and value companies. Hope, hopefully, that answered your question in a, as simple a way as as possible.
0: I I found it extremely helpful, even breaking it down to just the cost of the ownership. Right, we talk about this as you know, uh, we are partners and and we own a company. And as people continually tried to buy our company, which we have zero plans of of, of ever selling because we're control freaks. Um, it always comes down to valuation conversations, right? Like this, you would never have a conversation about buying or selling ownership without understanding valuations. And that, that's what we're doing as an investing standpoint. And the analogy I wanna bring to the table for so many listening that uh, our community is made up of athletes, right? And even in the general public, we, we understand sports so well is this is the complete amateur Versus the pro, the amateur being the fan uh, playing fantasy sports versus the pro being the actual company, the team, the organization, the GM, the president is fantasy sports. You fall in love with the momentum player, the guy who's got the hot hand, right? That night, you know, they just drained a bunch of three pointers and they've done it for a game or two or three or on the field a guy's hit a few home runs there's a hot pitcher or, you know the 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 running back that breaks out for a game or two and you start buying that player the difference is is the GM never constructs a team that way why because they're in the business of making money and so what do they do they look of not who's just recency bias who's not um popular right now it's hey, if I'm playing in baseball, 162 games, and I'm trying to be a a profitable company for decades, I look back and say, what do the analytics point to wins above replacement? What do the analytics actually say? If you remove the name on the jersey and the excitement around what they've done recently, what are the fundamentals that lead to higher returns? So we talk about small cap, you know, value here in the investment world in baseball, it's, it's, you know, it's spin rate, it's strikeouts versus walks. It's, it's these fundamentals that over the long-term lead to higher expected returns. And the reason small value uh, is-
1: Well, and it's what they cost,
0: right? Correct. It's absolutely what they cost. And then what they do, right? Billy Bean made it famous. Are there undervalued small value players that, you know what? They're not sexy names. They don't look the right part, right? They don't, they don't pass the itis but they produce returns, actually higher expected returns. And it's why sports have gone one of two ways. You've got super valuable companies like the Lakers or the Yankees or the Dodgers that just keep spending money because they believe they can, you know, even though they're expensive, they believe they can produce those returns or all the other organizations are throwing games. They're trying to be horrible. So that they can get higher draft picks right at lower values to drive their valuation so we understand the world via sports here and so i i just think it's a you know it's a great a great analogy and so for our listeners as we close out the conversation it's we always are trying to committed to say hey here are the principles to investing right and we highlighted over the last couple of weeks we're walking through what are the 10 principles to investing like a pro. And so if you head over to awminsights.com, you can download those 10 key principles to investing. And until next time, own your wealth, make an impact, and always be a pro.